After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. And it's Raghu and Dave back in our Mind Rollers persona. Which Hello is, again. How are you doing? I'm good. It's our day-to-day, really. This is uh, the, the beauty of this, actually, Dave, and why we, I think, have lots of fun, is that uh, it's just our day-to-day thing. Even when we're not doing the show, we're kind of doing the same thing. Well, we, I talk to myself all day, of course. That's true. But now you have a cat. You can talk to the cat. Um, so something happened. I, I think, well, you know, I've told you uh, this This little accident happened that I got into. And I was just reading something that, that is now explaining it all out, if you like. Did you know about Mercury going into retrograde at the end of January? Well... You know, no, but I mean, it goes into retrograde all the time, so what's the... And you think it's just more BS, right? It's just new agey, Mercury goes into retrograde, and everybody thinks that shit's not going to work, and everything that happens in their lives, they blame it for... They do, they do, they do. Well... I'm not aware of... I try not to be aware of when it starts or ends, because, you know... Well, let me tell you, I have a reason to believe, okay... Go for it. Yeah. I didn't know this till after this whole Mercury thing. And then I read about cars crashing and stuff, you know. So I um, I lost my puppy one day a couple of weeks ago after Mercury went into retrograde. So I went nuts because I, I I'm attached. And I ran around the corner and ran. It was very inclement, sleety, rainy, muddy day. And I went up my neighbor's winding road which is a dirt road and then couldn't find her and started to come back down deciding for some reason mercury retrograde not to go to the top and turn around but go backwards so i went backwards down this windy road and then a good friend of mine called me and to add insult to injury and to give you an idea of the opposite of mindfulness and awareness i took the call so here I am trying to turn around, I, you know, I'm stretching my neck out, trying to look out the rear window, going down the winding road, talking on the phone at the same time. Guess what happened? Crash. Well, I know, so I won't. Yeah, change. right. You have to, you can't ruin it. I slid into a ditch that, and that held me up by a, uh, tr- some tree branches 
uh, was the only thing that kept me from toppling over into a stream about uh, 15 feet below. Mercury retrograde. On the contrary, I think that if it, if it, I mean, you could have just the water, the car would have full of water, you would have drowned, and this would have been a different kind of podcast. I, you know, that's true too. Uh, it also, uh, I mean, I'm happy to blame it on this Mercury retrograde thing. Okay, <laughs> it's making me feel better because I have felt like a complete idiot. Suppose doing these podcasts and everything, and we're supposed to have some modicum of consciousness and mindfulness. Stop multitasking. I've been yelling at myself for, yeah, you know, since the, and now it's over, by the way. It's over. It's, uh, well, you know, multitasking while you're driving a car is not only not advisable, but it's illegal in this state. So. I don't know. And idiotic. I mean, multitasking in your house is not quite so dangerous as <laughs> driving your car off a cliff. Yes. So uh, this is a way of washing my soul, sins, whatever. I'm, I'm going to put it out right there. Is there an, another thing that isn't Mercury retrograde that's like Jupiter forward-looking or something? I mean, is there is there just like a time of the year when we all go, whoop-dee-doo, this is great, everything's going to work? I know. Why is it that the only thing that we really are focused on is mer Mercury retrograde or something that's dark and bad? Do you know what uh, Mercury, by the way? And the other thing is, these people, they name the craters uh, you know, after Mercury. It's nuts. Shakespeare, Lenin, Walt Disney, Alvin Ailey, Bach and Basho, they all have crater names on Mercury. That doesn't sound bad. And it's all cataloged, by the way, in the, the, the Gazetteer and Atlas of Astronomy. I'm not saying that right. The Gazetteer, right? And Atlas of Astronomy. All right. Th that's all. I, I just had to get that off my chest. I felt, I felt, really, I felt so horrible for these last three weeks. Now it's over, and I, I feel like just, uh, you know, talking to you about it. Well, no, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nasty thing that happened, and I, you know... I, we can attribute all kinds of reasons, you know. It's just stupid time. ass shit. That's all. There's yeah, no other fucking call it. That's what we call it. It's a scientific term that we use. Yes. Um, by the way, when I was speaking before of how you're talking about mind rolling, and we mind roll every day with each other, and uh, which is true, and some of the things that we end up doing, we've done it before, is I suddenly surprised Dave with a book, uh, a piece of music, something that he's never heard of before. So I'm going to get into this. and uh, It's a test because David is so aware of the coolest things that come out into media. It is just unbelievable. Uh, Dave, do you know a book called... It's pathetic. It's, pathetic. it's funny it is that I'm still distracted by this nonsense. You know, I just, I can't wait for that sell a monk so screw yeah. the media <laughs> um no i don't want to spoil your trip here but you know i don't want people to think that i'm just like a media hound which i am you are um so have you heard of a book called waking dreaming and being uh no no okay do you know a man named evan thompson no I got you. <laughs> All right. 
This is this. You know what this is going to be? We should do that. Everybody out there. Okay, we all should get this book. This book uh, looks, and I, I just this is just reading the um, you know a really great article about the book by someone who read it named Adam Frank, and it merge it's merging neuroscience and philosophy. Evan Thomas casts new light on the relationship between the self and the brain. And we're, we're going to be talking a bunch about a bunch of stuff today that really relates to this. And uh, so, Dave, I, I found this. Um, it, it, here's a little bit of uh, more of an explanation. Religion runs through the nature of consciousness. Carefully unpacking that contentious question and exploring what Buddhism in particular offers its investigation in its investigation is the subject of this book. So, uh, it, 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 um, let's see, wait, uh, once, one, so one of the posits is once the working brain in science stops working, our consciousness ends, we end, end of story, right? But right. the, for her others, including Thompson, something essential is left out of this neuro reductionist account. This is what, this is our new term for people who are completely stuck in the material, right? Neuro-reductionists, they are. <laughs> the, the vividness of our experience is neither corralled nor exhausted by fMRI maps or traces of brainwaves in EEG. There is an explanatory gap hanging between neural activity and conscious experience. And boy, we're going to talk about this a little uh, as we go along here in this podcast, because we we have uh, there's been a tremendous amount of new work around uh, working with psychedelics in all different ways, including dying, that this is a foundation for it. We should get this book, Dave. We really should. It's um, it's out. It's Columbia University Press. Of course, we can get it on Amazon. Please do go through our portal, bookmark our portal on Mind Rolling or MindPod Network. And, uh, this, this is something we should get and we should get you guys out there to give us some feedback. There must be a few of you who will take us up on this challenge, so to speak, get the book right to us. We'll corral a few of you. This is right off the top of my head, Dave. Okay. I mean, uh, is it a good idea? I mean, I'm saying it, but I think it's a good idea and we'll, we'll have a little bit of an interchange about the, this book and the uh, incredible things it's bringing up. No? Yeah, and uh, do it on the website, I guess. because Yeah, um, go through the comments se section yeah, on the website. We, we need comments because they keep the whole thing, uh, you know, kind of like a, a, a righteous thing rather than going off the top and spouting and then someone comments and says, what the, you guys are really off the wall that no be nice write nice comments but talk about the book <laughs> nice. i haven't read the book so I, I but i will you never even heard of the book never mind read the book no 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 it's because i'm a neuro reductionist at heart yes <laughs> um all right well this okay. is uh, this well, well done good yeah isn't that a good find yeah did you actually well no i won't ask what no i didn't did you read the... you didn't read the book yet. i you know what 
I am so, so multitasking all the time and I'm trying to straighten myself out. I pulled this out of something, threw it into something else in a file and just picked it up and realized it was, you know, there. So uh, this is this is for me, for everybody. And again, it's called Waking, Dreaming and uh, Being, just Waking, Dreaming, Being. Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation and Philosophy, Evan Thompson. And the other thing we're going to do is see if we can't get in touch. Evan lives in uh, British Columbia, I believe, and is a professor of philosophy at the University of BC. Of course, he's Canadian, so he would be a very informed and brilliant person. Of course. No uh, bias there. Um, okay, so do you want some books from me? No. Yeah, I want something from you. Yeah, so this is around, we're, here's our recommendation section of Mind yeah. Rolling. We're, and this book, of course, this is more than a recommendation, though, really. Can we get a few people? I really want to investigate. This is kind of a cool thing to do on a podcast, is, uh, is uh, work with uh, some of our folks out there who have an interest in that particular subject. So go ahead, next. Okay, well, uh, I want to get you on the Audible train. You know, Audible is uh, uh, an entity that helps us. If you purchase Audible or go for their free trial and then purchase Audible audiobooks, and we're happy to be associated with them because there's so much great material uh, that they've covered and that, uh, you know, you can listen to in your car or at home or before you go to sleep or whenever is your choice. But it is a great way to absorb information these days. It really seems to fit. Uh, I particularly want to say that this free trial that they give you is very good. And if I were you and you, I was going to do this, I would get the best book you could possibly get, the best audio book you could get for that free trial. Because if then you don't want to go on it anymore, at least you got that one. So there are many audiobooks for $5, $8, $10. Don't, don't get them for your free trial. Get this one. It's called You're It on Hiding, Seeking, and Being Found by Alan Watts. It's 12 hours and 12 minutes of material. 12 mm -hmm. hours of Alan Watts. You know, I'm going to read what they say about it. This is what they say. Life is the ultimate game of hide and seek. And the good news is that you are it. With a combination of playful irreverence and penetrating insight that made him a legend in Western philosophy, Alan Watts investigates a surprisingly liberating concept of the universe as play, found at the heart of Hinduism, Zen, and other wisdom traditions. Okay, this book is like a $70 audiobook. You get it for free wow. if you take the free trial on Audible. And then, when you've done that, you can get the unabridged Bhagavad Gita, which costs $7.99. And I don't know about you, but I find it rather difficult to read these ancient, um, ancient works of wisdom sometimes. And if they're read by the right person... Uh, it can open it up in a way that is just remarkable. Mm. So that's my, there, there are many other things we're going to talk about on Audible of the Week, but I, I find that if we list too many things, it just goes by, you know, you can't take in that many things at once. So um, get, get the Audible free trial, hit the Audible button, which I believe is now on the website. And, um, and if you're interested, anyway, get this book called You're It on Hiding, Seeking and being found 12 hours of Alan Watts, my goodness, that's mm. a treat. That is a treat. So do that. And um, I have some recommendations also for uh, Amazon. Uh, you know, there's a lot of KD on Amazon. But if you look, you'll see that um, 
they aren't all available in, you know, there aren't thousands available by now. Uh, so, for instance, I would go for Pilgrim Heart because it's, first of all, it's an amazing album. And it's only about 10 bucks, 10.69. And there are only 20 of them left at Amazon. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you don't get it, it'll be gone. There'll be 10 left and five, and then you'll have to really look for it. Uh, Door of Faith is, I think you would agree, Raga, one of the top KD albums. Just an amazing piece of work and wonderfully helpful. Uh, if you're just sitting and you want to listen to something, you don't know what you want to listen to, always put on Door of Faith and it'll open that door. There are only 16 of those left in stock. So um, get Door of Faith. And, of course, Kirtan Wala, his last album. Check that out. Um, so those are, I'm just recommending KD CDs. Okay, you can't say KD. Who's KD? Krishna Das. There you go. Krishna Das. So Krishna Das is, um, call him KD because life is short and you need to shorten everything. <laughs> so do that. And, um, you know, uh, I'm going to recommend one book to you, which we're going to recommend again in a few weeks, which is called Warrior Pose. And it's by Brad Willis, who was an NBC foreign war correspondent and is now known as Bhava Ram and we're going to interview him on Mind Rolling in a couple of weeks and if you want to get ahead of the game uh, and, and actually read the book that he wrote it's called Warrior Pose and it's available at Amazon and it's about $12 and I'm reading it as we speak and it's compelling is the word, mm. compelling so check out Warrior Pose and then listen to Mind Rolling number probably 100 or 99 or 101, and you'll hear him, and that's the end of my recommendations. Very good. I have something to offer as well on Amazon, and that is, have you heard Dylan's new record, Dave? I heard a couple of tracks, yeah. And? I'm just asking. I haven't heard it, and I heard his I voice is like completely different. I love his voice all the way through his career, and I've loved everyone. I have all of his 53 albums. Um, this one is, is standards, um, and, you know, I, I'm not big on standards. They make me think of whiskey and jazz, and when I was 14, didn't know what was going on, and I'm really not that into it. So I'm just being honest. I'm, I, ha I heard two tracks, you know, it's Bob Dylan being another aspect of Bob Dylan. People love it. And they do. They do. Mm. Uh, I've had quite a bit of feedback. From so I should listen to the whole thing, but I don't want to be a hypocrite here and say that I love it when I haven't really heard it and heard two tracks. Well, this is a hell of a way to recommend buying it well, on Amazon. Well, sorry, gonna... this, is, this is the way I feel. Yeah. Okay. That's all right. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll mention one other thing. It has nothing to do with music or books or films. And there's a clothing line called Prana, P-R-A-N-A. Talk about most comfortable kind of stuff to wear in and out of the house around uh, not just yoga, because it would sound to be a yoga thing. So uh, if we get enough people uh, looking at their products, we're going to go to Prana and ask them to be part of what we're doing. So that's it for now. Thank <laughs> you for everybody, again, supporting us through buying stuff at Audible and Amazon, where we get a little piece. With, that, with Audible, by the way, we get... When you get your free trial, uh, we get, what, a few bucks out of that every time somebody gets a, few, a free trial. And then you can stop it if you don't like it. So uh, audible.com. Yeah, but you probably will like it. So Yeah, just go to, uh, go to the Mind Rolling page, and that's where you'll find it, the link.
Dave, we have uh, both of us found uh, this particular piece uh, in, uh, in very recently in the New Yorker, and it's it's under the medical section, actually, and it's called the Trip Treatment. That's by Michael Pollan. It is absolutely excellent, very long article. And it's about psychedelics and uh, working with the dying, working with addiction, and so on and so forth, using psychedelics. Do you want to kick this off? Give us your impression well, it's of the in, Yeah, Raghu, it's in a thing they do in the New Yorker called Annals of Medicine. So it's not under, you know, mystical weirdness or hippie nonsense. It's under Annals of Medicine. And when you read it with that, and that's, it means something in this case, because when you read it with that in mind, it, it makes it, it gives it a certain gravitas and a certain historical value about what has gone on about the use of uh, psychedelics in therapy, addiction, uh, in, in uh, dying, uh, amelioration of condition, so on. Uh, and it traces it from the beginning. Uh, Pre-Leary, uh, Alpert, uh, way back actually, and it, it starts off with a guy who, who really was very ill, a guy called Patrick Metes. And um, he was given uh, psilocybin. And I think the majority of what they're talking about in terms of current usage of psychedelics is psilocybin. And he's just the first example. And then the, the article goes on to trace how incredibly helpful it now appears uh, these substances, what I would prefer to call sacramental substances, because he would not use, they don't use the word sacramental in this kind of article, which makes it more credible to most people, so fine, but for me they were sacramental experiences. And um, the psychedelic experience is a sacramental experience. In other words, it takes you close to the sacred. And that's where I'm at about it. I think it's great that, it, that they say in this that it helps uh, even things like stopping smoking. <laughs> you know, like one guy in the article <laughs> you know, actually used uh, psilocybin, I guess, or with the therapist to stop his very bad smoking addiction. And then after the one minute after the whole thing, he said, I'm not smoking anymore. It's such an irrelevant thing to do. He got it immediately. He got it. He saw himself smoking. He saw, he witnessed himself doing this act of self-destruction and, um, you know, addiction. And then the article talks a lot about using it to help um, the dying and mentions Aldous Huxley right at the beginning, who we all know uh, took uh, mescaline, I guess, when he knew he was dying on his deathbed with his wife. Actually acid. Well, it says in the article it was mescaline. Oh, really? Oh, I thought it was acid. Can yeah, we, uh, like he generally used mescaline. Because uh -huh. uh, you know, uh, my pal Lowell lived next door to him and did a lot of mescaline with him. Um, but, uh, yeah, you may be right. But, but anyway... It starts with that. And then, you know, it doesn't talk that much about our friends, um, Tim and Ramdas, but that's okay because they, they're talked about all the time in this context. Um, the thing that is most clear to me is that even these hard-nosed, you know, scientists, eventually, through all the other stuff about its therapeutic value, get to the point where they talk about the generation of mystical experiences universally uh, by people who are both religious and non-religious, both 
you know, into that kind of thing and not into that kind of thing. In these experiments that they did very, you know, they've been doing quite, quite carefully in the last 10 years, uh, the mystical experience of oneness, the apprehension of the sacred comes to people like me who were not interested in that before I started doing these substances. So um, the changes that are manifest came out even in these very um, tightly held, empirically based scientific investigations. I think that's incredibly interesting. The, the mystical still reared its beautiful head above all the, the other stuff. I'd like to actually, could we kind of start at the beginning of this? There, I've noted uh, several things that I found fascinating and really related to stuff I've been thinking about lately. Uh, but in the very beginning, I don't know if you know this, they talk about this, that all this experiment, experimentation started in the 50s, right? Uh, they yeah, they were yeah. using it to treat all sorts of different conditions. The, at, at some point, it was Nixon who put the kibosh on, you know, made it a Schedule One. So in the late sixties, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what is really weird is that the CIA also was experimenting. Remember, around that same time, and somehow they got it. They, I don't know how they work with the Canadian government, and got into a psychiatric hospital in Montreal, where I'm from. And my mother, who uh, at one period in her life was uh, manic depressive, uh, was in that particular hospital. And it had to be, I would say it's early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. And they uh, was given LSD. Really? She was part of those experiments that they were conducting. Yeah. Can you believe that? I mean, she was, so the only thing I ever got out of it, got out of her was, so what, what happened when you took it? What, I mean, what, what happened? And she just went, oh, I spent a few hours in complete bliss. I was so no, happy, she said. I was so happy. Hmm. She had a completely positive experience with it, even yeah. though she was, and this is, of course, she was a manic depressive, so they're, of course, now using this so much for uh, depression and anxiety, and, and most especially now in this uh, working with people who are dying to alleviate the direct fear and, of course, tremendous attachments uh, that are associated with uh, ego death. Um, and at that time, psychedelics were tested on alcoholics, people struggling with obsessive-compulsive disorder, depressives, autistic children, schizophrenics, terminal cancer patients, uh, as well as on healthy perfectly healthy artists and scientists and divinity students to study spirituality. And the results reported were frequently positive. So this is back in the day. But many of the studies were, by modern standards, poorly designed. So now, it's, and it says it was in 1970 when Richard Nixon signed the Controlled Substance, Substances Act and it became a Schedule One. That's when it all ended, right? And then 
as a result of what's going on with decriminalization in general, I have to imagine that's a big thing. Um, so there are several schools, and this was I was told this by uh, before this I saw this article by uh, Roshi Joe in Halifax that she's actually been part of uh, involved in some studies going on at Johns Hopkins, John Hopkins. Johns Hopkins and uh, at Harbor UCLA and University of New Mexico, as well as the Imperial College in London, which and University of Zurich. So there's major institutions that are now uh, researching and uh, and doing double bind. Is that what they're called? Double blind experiments where they're given a, the real thing and the yeah a placebo uh, yeah and the placebo. I wouldn't want, want to be the guy with a placebo. Yeah, that's, that's a lousy way to spend two hours. Yeah. Going, is it happening yet? Is it happening yet? <laughs> uh, okay, so, but, so, these, so these researchers now are using or planning to use psilocybin not only to treat anxiety, addiction, depression, but also to study the neurobiology of mystical experience which the drug at high doses can reliably, reliably occasion. So now it's a whole new ball game, and, and so this article goes into this, these, uh, the different ex experiments that have to date happened and have uh, resulted in what they call mind-blowing data, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they've even changed the name of it. I, I'm not even sure how to pronounce this. They call them entheogens, entheogens. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. So it takes it out of the uh, hippie culture, which is what you know yeah. very much. Yeah. And, and then in do. the article, Rago says entheogens are considered to be God facilitating, hmm. which I would agree with because before I took the entheogens, and in the late sixties, uh, God was even less of a word than a word. It was just a word, but it was actually less than a word. It didn't mean anything to me. And um, I have to say, before we go into more detail with this article, that, uh, you know, uh, I was a pretty committed atheist, hmm. uh, a socialist atheist, atheist, intellectual, if I can be so bold. And, um, you know, when it started taking uh, mushrooms and, and entheogens, uh, I soon realized that my knowledge was extremely narrow, if anything at all. That it was just, you know, empirical, uh, outside, neuro-reductionist stuff. Mm. Which didn't make it completely irrelevant. You can analyze certain things, you know. But when it came to talking about uh, spiritual uh, matters, uh, I was ignorant. And so uh, this opened me up. And I think the, the fact that in this article he talks about, uh, at the beginning um, also, uh, the the beautiful nature of it. Your mother, who you would never characterize as being a constantly happy-go-lucky woman, <laughs> for her to say that she was happy in that time proves a lot to me. And he, in this article, talks a lot about similar situations where people uh, were, you know, it was just the betterment of well people, they call it. The betterment mm -hmm. of well people, as opposed to, you know, Freudian study of psychosis. This is much more based upon... Uh, Ramdasian and Leary-esque uh, view of the universe, hmm. which is that it opens up constantly more and more and more every second if your uh, receptors are open. So, um, uh, 
you know, Houston Smith, who is one of my great idols, a great historian and spiritual historian, who was at MIT when I was living in, in Boston. I was lovely to meet him once. He did say, though, a spiritual experience does not by itself make a spiritual life, which is the same thing that I think mm. that Ron has been saying for years, which is that you have those revelations via this stuff, and, and it's incredible. That's the only word for it. Uh, but then one has to practice or learn a way to retain those, I guess, what the Christian church calls articles of faith. And that's by recalling some of the stuff that you experienced while you were tripping and, and trying to incorporate it into your normal so-called consciousness. Yeah. This is an interesting point you're actually bringing up, uh, that uh, we're going to remember that point, because I, I wanted to just, uh, a couple of these researchers uh, who started doing these experiments, I love what they said, I, I thought the first 10 or 20 people were plants, <laughs> that they must be faking it. Because they were saying things like, I understand love is the most powerful force on the planet, right? And then people who had been palpably scared of death, they lost that fear. Yeah. That, that of the fact that a drug, drug given once can have such an effect for so long is unprecedented. We have never had anything like it in the psychiatric field. So they were really really astounded and that's what has so they really have been driven to uh, further these experiments uh, with all of the accoutrement that they have at hand so pretty pretty interesting stuff uh, regarding the complete reversal today of what it has been like for decades of not allowing any of this to go on denying it it, it's uh, it's a fantastic thing. I mean, a really fantastic thing. And I, um, what are some of the other uh, stuff here? Well, you know, he says, um, great secrets of the universe often became clear during the journey, such as we are all one, or love is all that matters, what you just said. The usual ratio of wonder to banality in the adult, adult mind is overturned. And such ideas acquire the force of revealed truth. The result is a kind of conversion experience. And the researchers believe that this is what is responsible for the therapeutic effect, which is an interesting way of their looking at it. You know, okay, so you get this banal but true fact that we're all one. And, and, and realizations like that are manifold on, on when, you, when you're experiencing psilocybin or, or LSD or any of those others. Uh, they're saying, well, yes... That happens, and that helps you not be afraid of something, and not and not be uh, afraid of not being not being addicted. For instance, like many addicts are, just go. I can't. I'm never gonna. It's not gonna happen. I'm. I I love this stuff, and even though it's killing me, I can't stop doing it. And what they're saying is that the oneness, that sacral oneness that comes from the psychedelic experience, is the tool to heal the fear that's in you. Uh, and that makes sense. I see it as all one kind of, I don't see it as like a separate set of steps, but they do because that's the way they're trying to analyze and be, and be uh, sober uh, to people uh, who are wondering about this still. Um, you know, I still wonder about it because I haven't actually done any of those things for a long time because I made a decision a long time ago, as I think many of us did, that it was okay to take acid, but as Ram Dass has said many times, 
uh, you come down. So what are you left with? And um, that's why as a therapeutic tool, it's at this point more interesting possibly for scientists than as a mystical experience tool. Well, wait, they... wait, wait. The first, I mean, we, you did it a number of times. I did it a number of times, however many. Maybe yeah. it was more than what was needed, if you could say. But Prudent. certainly the identification that you get with the, a, a reality that you've never entered into before, that doesn't leave. That just doesn't leave. Whether you need to keep reminding yourself of that reality is what you're, what you're talking about. And you've mentioned before that uh, that's what the point was before. Once you, uh, once you have this experience, uh, you have to find ways to actualize it in your life. And we're talking about practice and so on and so forth. And, uh, but the, 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 the famous thing that Ramdas particularly says, and we could all say, those of us who met, went back and met this being, Neem Karoli Baba, the, uh, the, um, the almost, can I say, exact experience that we had on psychedelics, the, uh, the ineffable experience, the complete, utter connectiveness with absolutely every molecule with every molecule of everything in the in, in, that in the, that we understood in, in in the earth that was present it was an exact mirror of the psychedelic trip and that's what he was looking for he was looking for okay where's the map and here is an actual human being that reflects that map of consciousness and so that was extremely important, I think, for most of us. I can't imagine there was hardly anyone who hadn't had the psychedelic experience that I knew over there. I, I, I believe it, it really was important step to be able to actually be in, in the presence of, of somebody who reflected back exactly that experience. And there's stuff in this article of people talking about that experience. How about the guy who, um, uh, the man who who was uh, taking it because he, you know, he had uh, terminal cancer, and and he talks about the the experience that he had. Um, it, it's just I I could have said the same thing after going to India and sitting with with Maharaji. Um, from here on, love was the only consideration. It was and is the only purpose. Love seemed to emanate from a single point of light, and it vibrated. No sensation, no image of beauty, nothing my, during my time on earth has felt as pure and joyful and glorious as the height of this journey. I mean, just... Uh, what a, just and in his trip, did you, did you read this, Dave? The considerable feminine energy all around me made mm. clear the idea that a mother, any mother, regardless of her shortcomings, could never not love her offspring. This was very powerful. I knew I was crying. This is like uh, talking about how it is only one thing going on in this universe. <laughs> This guy is saying something, do you know, that is in the deepest prayer from uh, the, the Shankaracharya, right, who was 
when was he alive, Dave? Like fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh century or something? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah early, yeah, three, even the third or fourth. He composed a prayer to the Divine Mother, right, which is famous in India. And the uh, the con- the chorus, if you can say chorus about a prayer, but it gets repeated. And this was taught to us by Casey Tuari, our mentor, and David. I have talked about him on the show quite a bit. Uh, and in it, it says, "A son can be bad, but it is not in the mother's nature to be bad." Exactly what this guy just said on an ass on a psych- uh, psilocybin trip. Mm. I mean, I just find that incredibly fascinating. Yeah, but it, it is. It is, Roger, and, and it, it points to what I think is the real core of all of this, which is that, you know, it's hard to describe an LSD trip or a, uh, any kind of ayahuasca or peyote or anything. They're all different because you go through so many deaths and lives during them. There's no denying it. You begin to understand that all is changing. The temporary nature comes to you. The temporal nature of, of, of reality comes to you even quicker with that. But what cuts through all of that is the intense feeling of connection and love. And when you say, I wouldn't even use the word connection. Interconnection, those are words. They're all words. But what it really is a feeling, an overwhelming, radiant feeling that you are indeed part of everything else. And therefore, uh, those neuroses that tease you all the time are are trivia and, and have got to be sort of got over. And, there, and so, you know, love is the answer, yeah. Um, when I was doing these things, which I think what mind rolling is about is what we've experienced rather than just what someone's trying to prove. I'm very happy about this article, but, you know, I, in one acid trip, I could never describe in a thousand volumes what happened to me in four, five, six, seven, eight hours. Never. It's impossible. I tried once to write as I was tripping and peaking and all of that. And gave it up because it was spoiling the, it was spoiling the immersion, but the immersion and the living and dying and fear and darkness and the Orpheus thing of 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 not looking back and looking back into your life and seeing no there is no past and the, the extreme screaming reality of the present and the lack of reality of the past and future came through and then this wonderful feeling of love I remember this may sound kind of trivial I don't care but when I first tripped I had occasion not the first trip I took, but early, to be in someone's house who had fish. Hmm. Fish in a, a tank. And I've never been a big fish guy. <laughs> quite honestly, I like cats and felines and dogs and horses. I remember looking at, into, into that thing of these different fish and seeing into their eyes, into fish, who were kind of thought of as being, oh, well, you know, they're in the ocean and they're cold-blooded and they're kind of just fish. But what I experienced, I've never forgotten it, was incredible love between me and those fish. They were just incredibly innocent, incredibly beautiful in their absolute unconditionality. And that was fish. And, you know, fish have got fish eyes. They don't have, like, eyes like, you know, like um, humans or orangutans or even dogs and cats. Nevertheless, that was it for me. I realized through those fish that I was living a contracted, separationist, neuro-reductionist world. I totally love this word you've come up with, Robert. a neuro-reductionist I, world, that I didn't know anything about the connection between me and fish. 
and that increasing, you know, it's, I know it's funny, but it, it's true. And my experience with animals over the years when involved in any kind of sacramental uh, intake was always amazing. Animals, my goodness, how innocent they are and how far we've come in our neurotic sort of infrastructure. And that's some of the things that these substances, and occasionally if you're lucky enough, an, an ascended master comes into your life. But if you, that hasn't happened, uh, you can still, I mean, nobody has to do these things. That's bullshit to say they have to do them. But I'm glad I did them because it opened me up to a universe that I was closed. I didn't know existed. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because we can't be recommending psychedelics no. to everybody ad hoc. Uh, although we do believe in it ourselves, uh, we believe in it. This is like a commercial or something. But look, let oh, me. But here's the story. In, in one of these, one of these guys, on uh, in the experiments that they did, uh, he he had to be restrained and given Thorazine. Remember Thorazine? Okay, yeah, got to end this trip now. Take a little Thorazine, antipsychotic. Yeah. After did. after he ran out the chapel and headed down in Boston, I guess Commonwealth Avenue, convinced that he'd been chosen to announce that the Messiah had arrived. Now, we've seen a lot of that over yep. the years, have we not? Yeah. And that's yeah. mostly people uh, completely, uh, well, they're uh, taking the drug without any kind of uh, um, work. you got to be with someone who has some idea of what this drug does and where it's going to go. That's why in ayahuasca ceremonies, they have a brujo, a shaman, or somebody who is leading the people in the thing, and it's leading them through a, a journey, which is absolutely necessary. And in fact, most of these experiments that they're doing now, they're using, um, they're definitely using a, uh, a guideline of how to set up a proper experience. They even to the point where if somebody gets a little bit afraid, like their body is dissolving in front of them, well, before they start the, ceremony, the session, they say, don't worry about your body. I'm going to take complete care of your body. It's going to be just fine. Stuff like that is absolutely necessary. So anybody out there who hasn't done a psychedelic and is hearing us talk so highly about the experiences that we've had that uh, were primary in our lives and wants to do it, definitely get with somebody, at the very least, who's done it, who's a, a, a very... Uh, conscious as person i mean they're not to be enlightened or anything but somebody who is caring and who will take care of you and who yep. has some ideas of the different stages that you go through at uh, least until you get used to it there comes a point when you if you are if you if it does help you you can do it on your own but that takes set, set and setting of an extreme kind before that happens uh, i wish yeah, that had happened to me i mean i i was kind of cavalier about it and went through a lot of changes about it and one time at the beach in Connecticut, in Old Saybrook, I really lost my mind. And I needed people to help me, but, and they were there. But, they, you know, I was, I was shocked by how powerful this, this thing was. And, and I'd already done it. And yet it came at me like, a, like a, a monster. And so, yes, you do have to. And, you know, I'm of the opinion that if you don't need to take it, don't take it. I mean, you know, in other words, if you're happy and if you're full of love, I know people like this who've never done any of this, and they're lucky and lucky and happy, mm. I'd say. But for many people, you know, I just have my own experience. That's yeah. all. Which was, uh, I was just not close to any kind of uh, any kind of grasp 
of anything larger than what my mind made up. So I could grasp Shakespeare and criticism. Uh, that's what I did at university, you know, is read books about Shakespeare. And I could do that. But when I really think about it now and I look at that same Shakespeare, <laughs> my goodness, Shakespeare knew so much more than I was capable of knowing when I was re reading his novel, his novels, his plays. And now I, I look at King Lear or something and I can see the spiritual vastness of it and the depth of it. So, you know, I don't know whether Shakespeare ever did more than drink a lot of mead, a lot of ale. I doubt that he took anything close to an entheogen. But, you know, I was narrow before that. Mm. And, you, were, um, you were the king of the neuro-reductionists. I was the man. I was the king you of that. You were the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, not to be... But Raga is exactly right. Just in case anybody's listening and, and became indignant at our, you know, sort of just saying take... We never would say just take. Nobody ever did. I, I knew Timothy Leary in 1966. That's when I met him. And he never said that. He, he, he did himself what he wanted to do. But he was very careful with students, at least at the beginning, and people about, you know, make it make it the right room in the right place with the right people mm. and exactly the right uh, molecule yeah. that you're taking. Yeah. And, you know, when people when people like Nixon and et cetera, you know, accused Leary of being a dangerous person in the society. Yes, he was a dangerous person in the society, totally dangerous, because he let people into a new club which was the club of not believing that the society was perfect or correct or, and that a lot of bad shit was happening in our name. So, yes, he was dangerous, hmm. as was John Lennon, because, I mean, we know that Nixon also said that Lennon was the most dangerous person in America. And Lennon had done a lot of psychedelics, but he was also a, a, a political analyst and a social activist. So, yes, they were dangerous men and women, but they helped. They helped open up people's hearts, I believe. Yeah, dangerous in the right way, shall we yeah, say? Yeah, dangerous in the right way. Yeah. Yes, um, exactly. you know that the the uh, the questionnaires that they're using around qualifying people and so on um, come from um, it's it's their mystical experience questionnaire, which is based in part on William James' writing in the varieties of religious experience. Isn't that yeah. incredible? Yeah. The questionnaire measures feelings of unity, sacredness, ineffab ineffability, peace, joy, as well as the impression of having transcended space and time and the neotic sense that the experience has disclosed some objective truth about reality. Okay, this could be my personal direct experience and many others when we went to India and met this being, was all of that. And that was, we understood that we could actually directly uh, understand the experiential quality of it because of, Having done psychedelics, so again, I I keep sounding like I'm going off on on a, encouraging everybody to do it, as we were talking about before, and that's not really the case. I'm it except for the fact that both of us had such strong experiences, and many people that we knew back then that led us into these states, which we have since nurtured through spiritual practices of one sort or another. Right. Yeah, um, we found lost them many times, and 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 you know, the answer obviously is not in taking a pill or something, but when you said before, uh, you know, that the ayahuasca shaman is as important as the substance, 
that was my experience with Native American uh, traditions that I was involved with, that uh, where a shaman uh, just completely guided you and took away any fear you would have either existentially or for uh, God knows what was going to happen in two hours, that kind of thing. Uh, that's very important and we can't stress it enough. But, you know, we can't lie either, which is to say that um, uh, what took me out of my state of, um, of um, alienation, if you like, certainly, my goodness, these substances were a major part mm -hmm. of that. And, um, you know, these days, uh, it's, it's, it's weird. It's both better and worse. People take some of these things and, and, and party, you know, which is okay, I guess. But I was never a partier with it. I, I don't think I, I, if I ever did that, I regretted it. It was not about partying and getting high and getting late. It wasn't like that for me at any rate. Mm. It was all about, oh, my God, it's hit. Oh, my God, I'm here. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God. There is a God. Oh, God. What is this? <laughs> oh, oh. And that's all it was for me. And I'd just sit there for hours alone or with one or two other people once I got used to it and just feel it and be happy, happy, happy that I've been given this revelation. And that, um, you know, it was a very internal internal journey now i feel really bad not bad but inferior the kinds well, of as you you're speaking of the experience that you're having that you had in with psychedelics is so high-minded can i tell you what happened to me in my first trip this i know is embarrassing <laughs> you know wasn't it to do with uh, sex and 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 some because you told us on another mic really I did? Yeah, we did. Okay. About right, well, I'm not going to tell it again, except I'm only remembering it because you're talking about the extraordinary uh, spiritual experience. And, and you're right. My girlfriend and I had sex on acid the first time I ever um, took acid and, uh, and had, an, I mean, the experience was talk about unity. So we really got unioned. Uh, in that experience, but uh, it was less high-minded than I'm just remembering. Oh, I, I'm, I'm, remember, I'm looking back at it. I don't know what it, what it was so high-minded at the time. I mean, I did once have sex on mescaline, synthetic mescaline, yeah, and it was it was absolutely horrible. And 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 the reason it was horrible because my whatever was going on with me at that moment, you know, it, it was a different thing, and I didn't need to be doing that sex thing at that moment. But we felt we should, and it wasn't that great, but. <laughs> You know, unity, yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, all I'm saying is that when I tried to do other things that were externalized, not that sex is necessarily external, of course, but, you know, go to a party, go to a movie, whatever, into a movie, you know, three minutes into the movie, it was like, let me out of here. <laughs> this movie doesn't come close to what I'm experiencing in my cerebrum right now in my heart. Get me the fuck out of here. I didn't care whether it was 2001 or anything like that. I didn't want to see that. I wanted to closely examine what was happening in my system. By the way, here's a whole other thing that happens. We're not ta we're talking about just the beauty and the how we are just feel part of everything, every substance and so on. The, we're talking about joy and love, but uh, there's also a part when the ego confronts the fact that it is dying, which happens on a strong dose of psychedelic. And if you feel like you're dying, melting, dissolving, exploding, going crazy, etc., go ahead, 
embrace it. That's the instruction from somebody who is uh, a good guide. And if you confront anything frightening, look the monster in the eye and move towards it. Does that remind you a little bit about chode practice, right? Definitely, same thing. Same thing. Dig in your heels and ask, what are you doing here? What can I learn from you? And you might also say, what do you need from me? I'm happy to share it with you. Look for the darkest corner in the basement and shine your light there. This training may help explain while the darker experiences that sometime accompany the recreational use of psychedelics have not surfaced in these tests, right? Because they are working with people, giving them a framework and a security so that you, once you start to, when they say, oh, I'm afraid now or whatever, it's okay. Embrace that. Love that. And so... The other thing about this is that if you can have that experience on a psychedelic, it goes a long way to internalizing and and, um, creating conditions from which on a day-to-day basis you are going to react, and maybe not right away, but uh, more practice, more perfect, that you are not going to be buffeted by these fears the way that you would be without that experience. So that's, an, to me, another important aspect of, of this kind of, uh, of, of using psychedelics in a, in a very controlled and um, positive and framed-out way. So I think, that, uh, I think that's real important, Dave, and because we've right. all gone through that. Yeah, I mean, if there's no, if there's no kind of framework that, that, that helps... It's it's it can be very awful. I mean, you know, people have told me about oh, you know, I took acid and went into Times Square. It's like, what are you crazy? And you're encountering two hundred thousand other people's egos, and you can see them all, and they're not all that attractive in terms of like what they're thinking at that exact moment. No, there are silly things to do. Um, you know, driving on any of these substances is absolute madness and should not be done. And I feel very strongly about that. Uh, I don't think people should drive when they have a, a pint of ale, never mind a dose of uh, of an entheogen. I'm going to keep using that word until until I get used to it. I like the word because yeah. it just takes it out of that that sort of, you know, the other stuff has got such baggage on it. You say LST, people go, oh, it ruined a generation. No, it didn't. Vietnam did more damage than any LSD trip, you know. Right. I guess I'm thinking a lot about the 60s right now because I'm doing a, a film about it. But, I, you know, I, I can't help but think about the fact that so many people I knew back then uh, were were changed for life. As you said before, Raga, you know, uh, some meet a, a guru who can do this. Uh, most don't. And um, this can be very helpful. And I happen to think that all of these types of, of substances that aren't hard drugs, you know, cocaine, heroin, speed, those awful things. Um, Marijuana can also be sacramental, and you also need to be a little bit choosy about, you know, about that. Um, I was once backstage at a concert in New York, um, and it was a reggae show, and and, um, we were sitting talking uh, in between the shows, and uh, a guy came in 
just sort of burst into the dressing room and, and, and had a big joint and offered it to me and nobody accepted. And I sort of put out my hand and my friend Max Romeo, the reggae star, just grabbed it and threw it and ground it on the floor hmm. and asked the person to leave, which he did. And then he turned to me and he said, no, nah, man, you don't take you don't take ganja from someone you don't know. And put it in our circle, our little sweet circle here. He come in and he show. You don't know. No, don't ever do that again. And I was not prone to doing that, but he was basically saying the same thing: set and setting. You know, just for a joint. But I've seen people freak out smoking pot too, hmm. through you know not being ready for it or not doing it in the right way or whatever. You can't trivialize this stuff. This this stuff is 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 the manna of our time. It's a miraculous stuff. I mean, lots of people have talked about mushrooms being an alien invasion. You know, the, the mushrooms came and there they are and they're alive. And when you trip on mushrooms and look at them, you know what they're saying. They're alive. Look yeah. at a peyote plant when you're, on, when you're actually using peyote. Oh, my God. It's alive. It's communicating with me. Now, to say it comes from another galaxy is, is beyond my pay scale. But, uh, you know, uh, I understand the sentiment. These are powerful agents. Here's something else he, uh, which codifies what we've been talking about in terms of the actual experience and how that can affect you uh, really for the rest of your life. Great secrets of the universe often become clear during the psychedelic journey, such as we are all one or love is all that matters. The usual ratio of wonder to banality in the adult mind is overturned and such ideas acquire the force of revealed truth. The result is a kind of conversion experience, and the researchers believe that this is what is responsible for the ultimate therapeutic effect. Yeah, so, I, read, I read that before, Raghur. And, I, you know, I mean, what, what I would say about that is that, you know, I would like to dissect the word banality, because we all get a little bored with banal statements about the universe. But I think the point he's making is that uh, the reason they, they are so powerful is because they are true. And that, yes, they help the therapeutic experience. But I think that, um, well, I think that all of time, all every day, every moment is a therapeutic experience, actually. Mm. You know, going to a therapist is all well and good, but I just... Um, I use my experience to therapeutify myself. <laughs> therapeutify? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, a high-dose psychedelic experience is death practice. That's the other thing about this that, of course, is so common. You're losing everything you know to be real, letting go of your ego and your body, and that process can feel like dying. And yet, you don't die. That's right. In fact, some volunteers become convinced by the experience that consciousness may somehow survive the death of their bodies. So that's also uh, a direct experience, that, and that's why they're giving it to people who, like this particular man that they feature in the article, who uh, had terminal cancer and was given the uh, psychedelic psilocybin and had all of the experiences that we've been describing and 
in the end, uh, and you guys can get out there and get this article. I mean, we're quoting uh, some of the stuff in here, but it's really well done. In the end, this man had a beautiful death, conscious as conscious could be, and without fear. And uh, that's a major uh, transformation for somebody who was really had no experience. It wasn't like one of us, perhaps, that is going through this that already had that experience and has some... It's, it's, it's been explicit in our life day to day since that time. And one would hope that uh, the continued work at that level would address the kinds of things people go through when they die. We shall see. Dave, you and It's me. amazing to me that Tibetan masters, you know, the Tulkus and, and Lamas, you know, they didn't take uh, antheogens, and yet they were able to describe in intimate detail how to um, approach the dying moment and what was going to happen to you and why. Yeah. And uh, it just shows their advancement in terms of the study and practice that they put in over hundreds of generations. And they to... talk about this in this article about the, in yeah. the, those days, uh, the Vedas and, and the North Indian philosophers, Buddhists and so on, and how they spent so much of their time on finding these realities. Out. I love what William James said, though. Uh, around the mystical experience. This is probably the, I, I love this almost as the best thing in this article. He suggested that we judge the mystical experience not by its veracity, which is unknowable, but by its fruits. Does it turn someone's life in a positive direction? And can they be uh, a real can they turn into a generous human being that help that affects whoever it is that's around them? That is, is, is really part and parcel to the whole spiritual path. And it's what his holiness talk, Dalai Lama talks about as well. You can do the most esoteric teaching. You can take acid for 40 years straight every day, whatever you can do 10 years in a cave. You can do all of these things, but if you don't have the simplicity of, of being able to be a positive uh, force in the world, to and it doesn't have to be in a public way, just to anyone around you, then none of this shit means anything, you know? And uh, that I feel pretty, pretty strongly about. But I think it's very... I can't say... People that have picked up and used psychedelics and gotten on the spiritual path following that, met whatever teachers or uh, siddhas or saints, whatever, those people that have been taking it uh, seriously from that point on have generally accounted for themselves in a way that's been um, positive for the planet. And I think if we had more people who uh, took that to heart I think it would go a long way to uh, supporting the kind of changes that need to be supported at, at this time and place in history. And again, we're not we're, we're not telling people to go take psychedelics, but we're saying it is potentially a very, very positive sign when uh, science is actually coming together and realizing that the psychedelics can point us in a direction 
that can be major transition uh, transformation in our lives. So I think it's a it's a great article, Dave. And there's so much more in it. I mean, we yeah, we're there kind is of at the end, but um, tremendous amount. And I love this article because not only does it give you the history of the thing, a lot of which I did not know. Uh, but it also infuses it with that what you just said, which is you know that, that this is um, this is something that is a, a great a great addition to our nervous and anxious and and you know culture, you know, and and very few things you can say that of. But I think you're right that people who see this particular have this vision or this grasp uh, when it's done in the right way are forever changed. Were you struck by this thing? I mean, we're ending, and yet I just can't leave this out, the default mode network that he brought yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't that amazing? Yeah, I, we, should, we should at least sort of explain that. It, it, it's sort of like there is a default that we go to. And what did he say about... The network what? which consumes a significant portion of the brain's energy appears to be most active when we are least engaged in attending to the world or to a task. It lights up when we are daydreaming, removed from sensory processing, and engaging in higher-level metacognitive processes such as self-reflection, mental time travel, rumination, and theory of the mind, the ability to attribute mental states to others. So it, it comprises a critical and centrally situated hub of brain activity that links part of the cerebral cortex to deeper, older structures in the brain, such as the limbic system and the hippo, hippopotamus. The hippo, hippocamus. <laughs> <laughs> I can never pronounce it. <laughs> the hippocamus. And uh, so what happens, um, it, so it's the, so the, the, uh, it, they, they describe the default mode network variously as the brain's orchestra conductor or corporate executive uh, charged with managing and holding the whole system together. It is thought to be the physical counterpart of the autobiographical self or ego. I mean, they're actually f finding shit out here. It's unbelievable. And uh, so they found when, the, uh, when you took a psychedelic, uh, it appears that with the ego temporarily out of commission, the boundaries between self and world, subject and object, all dissolve. Right, and th those are the hallmarks of the mystical experience. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it, that it, that is one the basic ultimate, you know, aspiration. I guess is this, if you can use that word, but the richness that is within that belies the, that word i mean you know just the fact what does that mean you know what does it mean that oneness well it's a feeling it's not a perception it's not something you see you may think you see it but what you're seeing is something your mind is building for you to emphasize what it is yeah. and that's where some of these psychedelic uh substances can really help as well as um you know we must add that when we were taking this yoga was there but it was not all over the world. Or mindfulness. Yeah, nobody had those things codified or wrote books about them, at least as far as I know back then, except the likes of Alan Watts and Humphrey Osmond and amazing visionaries. Whereas now it's all over the place. So, you know, that's a great thing because it means that the, the disciplines that are uh, ameliorating ameliorate, ameliorate, and um, remedial are coupled with the potential of... Uh, 
of the substances together, uh, it all becomes more stable and more manageable and therefore possibly more rewarding, Yeah, uh, you know, I think. And if, uh, people who are always relating with us and, and writing to us uh, about what are the first steps to take to be able to get a little bit of balance in our lives, and we talk a lot about uh, meditation practice, and of course uh, that's a primary element in mindfulness practice. And here you have science that's through the use of the psychedelic, which knocks back that whole default network, right? Mm. Um, the, the, the drug appeared to substantially reduce brain activity in the default mode network. So that's obviously a very powerful compound that's just striking uh, into that network. But wouldn't it seem um, totally logical, Dave, that through meditation, even a few minutes a day, you are striking into that default mode. And I think that, that your original uh, uh, comments about how great to have this, don't know if we need to keep the psychedelic experience, don't know if I need to keep taking, I haven't taken it in a long time. I think very much that uh, meditative experience ultimately cuts through that default network and allows all of the same conditions that uh, happen through, through the power of a, in six, eight hours of a psychedelic to happen. I think that's a very uh, uh, important, substantial factor whenever anybody takes a look at what are the things I can do. Forget, forget about taking the psychedelic right, right now if you haven't. Maybe mm. just sit, learn a meditation practice. Just get used to the idea that uh, you, there can be, once there's some one-pointedness, there can be that, that cutting through of, the, uh, of this default mode of ego. I think it's terrific. Uh, and they're, they're proving this stuff out. Dave? Yeah, no. Am I, I boring you? No, I'm, no, I couldn't agree. I'm just listening intently. You know, I, I, I think that you said something that's kind of a good way to end here, because even if you don't, to use, you know, or involve yourself in a psychedelic experience, you can at least involve yourself in reading this article and seeing what, you know, empirical, objective-based uh, scientists and explorers are finding out about the brain and about the neurosystem and about our ability to become more than just an ego. Even if you just read that and you meditate, uh, you'll come to it. it it's all there. And, there, you know, I just always tend to think these days about the exquisite nature of individual karma. Uh, we all put down the ego and all of that, and we should because it drives us crazy. But we're all in a different place and yet heading towards the same place. But that means that some people with their exquisitely individuated karma are going to just meditate and go there and be and have a happy dying process or being able to get over a great loss or trauma because they have practiced. And other people somehow need that turbocharge. You know, yeah. and could well benefit from, by a, by a, a peyote ceremony or whatever. I did, and it, it shot me into a reality that I would never have been in. And I'm still, I'm still, you know, there in the sense that it's vivid. It was so vivid. But I know plenty of people who would never consider doing anything like that, 
who are, who are very fulfilled and balanced in their lives. So this is not a panacea ever. It's mm. whether your karma screams and calls to you and says, now do this in order to go there. And, and that's, I think, an individual decision of the most beautiful kind. Yeah. Well, that's lovely and well said, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, it's a Sunday out there, and, and the wind is blowing both in, in, in North Carolina and in New York. And I can hear the wind, like, really loud here. Is it there, too? It passed already. Now it's a light thing. It was all night, see, because it well, comes here first, and it comes to you. It blows the bullshit out of your head. Yeah, right. like, that's that. it. That, that's it. That's it. Well, Dave, this has been great. Um, again, uh, around a subject that's dear to our hearts and one that uh, bears even more consideration as they go on and do these experiments, not only with psychedelics, uh, but with meditation and uh, in neuroscience. I think this is a fascinating thing. I love His Holiness the Dalai Lama, how he's really pushing to, uh, to integrate all of that. And uh, so we're, we're going to continue on this subject in the months, weeks, months, years ahead, should we survive that long, Dave. Yeah, it's a thought. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. MindRollingPodcast.com. We love your support. Please continue the support also for the MindPod Network. Dave, we're going to be introducing a new podcaster. It's going to yeah. be secret till next week. But yeah. look for that and uh, join us in uh, continuing to share your thoughts and so on. So we'll see you next time on MindRolling. Yeah, later. Later.